Welcome to Evidence-Based Radio. As always, you can find me throughout the week at the Facebook page, and you can find this and previous shows as a podcast on your favorite podcatcher, uh, something like Spotify or uh, whatever iTunes is using for <laughs> uh, podcasts these days. It seems to change a lot. Um, or via the website, evidencebasederrata.com. So let's start tonight with a story that has the potential, at least, to make a lot of people, and especially pet owners, happy. A team from the University of Oklahoma and the University of Texas at San Antonio have found that a fungal-derived compound called paracetamol A, sorry, paracetamol A, um, can actually react with skunk spray secretions and turn them into odorless products. So that's right, it can take skunk and make it not smell like skunk anymore. That's pretty impressive as far as I'm concerned. Uh, now, skunks, of course, as I personally think, they're adorable. Um, but, you know, I, I am not immune to the fact that they are a bit of a problem, especially for people who own dogs. Um, because it's really hard to get the spray out of things. And so um, it's it's definitely a problem. Um, when they're threatened, they will spray a fluid from their anal glands, which contains a stinky cocktail of organosulfur compounds. And so organosulfur compounds are also found in things like tear gas. Um, and so like tear gas, skunk spray can cause severe watery eyes and even vomiting. Now, part of the big problem here is that humans are very good at smelling these compounds, which means that even an extremely low concentration of the substance remaining on any surface can make it hard to get away from it. So even if you've washed everything down, if you've missed a couple of spots, it can still really smell for you. And that's why, unfortunately, it can also often smell for several days in an area where a um, skunk has unfortunately not managed to cross a road, for instance. Now, commercial neutralizers are often, first off, not terribly effective, uh, but they can actually also uh, have skin and eye irritation, uh, cause skin and eye irritation themselves. It's not very helpful if it's just going to make you even more itchy and unhappy. Um, and so Dr. Robert Sinkovitz from the University of Oklahoma and his colleagues decided to explore whether paracasin A could help out with this stinky problem. And so they tested the product against different organosulfur compounds found in skunk spray, and they found that they worked against two types, thiols and thioesters, and they were able to convert them to stable odorless products. They then tweaked the formula of the compound to make it safer and more effective on skin applications, and they conducted in vitro eye and skin tests that determined that the compound was non-irritating. 
Um, so remember, in vitro is in a Petri dish. They didn't put this in anybody's eyes or anything uh, or in any animal's eyes. Um, and so uh, they note that our team is continuing to probe the potential applications of paracasines, as well as pursue studies aimed at improving routes towards the production of these metabolites. And so uh, the results, the encouraging results obtained for paracasine A and its analogs revealed a promising suite of commercial applications utilizing this robust odor neutralizing technology. Further studies examining the activities of additional synthetic paracasines are anticipated to provide inspiration for the creation of a new generation of non-toxic materials engineered to counteract a range of nox noxious nucleophilic substances. <laughs> so long story short, uh, this is a pretty exciting uh, field right now. And so it could be that these fungus derived substances are going to sort of uh, put things like Febreze and uh, pledge not pledge, pledge is really for furniture, but you know, things like Febreze uh, out of business, they might be even better. Uh, though for some reason, people still like to cover scents with other scents. I've never really gotten that. Um, as someone who is actually uh, scent sensitive, um, I cannot handle people um, wearing, you know, heavy perfume and things like that, or cologne. It just, it makes my whole system rebel. Um, you know, I've never kind of understood why you would not want to just neutralize things. So this sounds great to me. <laughs> um, and I think that it will be really great if they can come up with a commercial project product that will be able to actually, uh, clean dogs, for instance. I think that's a really, that's kind of the first line, I think, because that seems to be the worst place where skunks interact with, uh, people is when they end up spraying people's dogs and cats occasionally, but um, I hear it much more from dogs. And of course, this remedy won't be on the shelf on the market shelf soon. You know, this is proof of concept. Uh, you know, this is in the lab still, but hopefully there is relief in sight. And so yeah. Um, <laughs> and so unfortunately, People are still going to encounter skunks. Um, animals are still going to keep doing it and come home to share the story and the stink. Uh, so hopefully we'll be able to be able to um, have this product that can help. Okay, so let's move on now. A lot of internet pixels and print words have been spilled on the new gene editing technology CRISPR. Um, so I've talked about this before, um, basically what it is, it is a mechanism in which you basically have what they call molecular, uh, scissors where the CRISPR, uh, Cas9, um, sequence goes into the DNA and will actually snip out little bits. Um, and hopefully it's the bits that you want, uh, most of the time, in research so far, it has been. There is, of course, as I said, still a lot of back and forth about this because some people are very uh, unhappy about it. They find it to be very, uh, you know, too much of a new frontier. Um, but it's really important to let people uh, continue to work on this because it might very well have 
really, really huge implications for uh, how we, you know, deal with disease, especially genetic diseases and um, things like that. And so let's just leave off the other bits of, you know, engineering babies and things like that for now. Let's just talk about, you know, curing diseases, because that's, I think, a place where a lot more of us are kind of on the same page. And so the first study to test the use of CRISPR inside of the human body is about to be undertaken in the U.S. to try and treat an inherited eye disorder that causes blindness. It is a form of Leber congenital amaurosis, and that's where a mutation in a recessive gene affects the functioning of the retina. It causes an inability of the light-sensitive cells in the retina to function and thus leads to blindness. The eye looks normal, but eventually is unable to function properly. And so usually it's a degenerative, but it's a pretty quick degeneration um, as the child uh, grows. And so it's actually one of the most common causes of childhood blindness with around two to three newborns out of every 100,000 being diagnosed with the disease. This is according to the National Institutes of Health. Now, the treatment should correct the mutation, allowing the retina to develop normally, or at least to start working normally, because um, it's actually developed fine. It's just that it needs to have something be changed so that it can work normally, so that those cells can actually capture light properly. The researchers will inject the treatment directly into the light-sensitive cells, according to Etiatas Medicine, the company conducting the study with Allergan. Now, the trial will enroll 18 patients, both children over the age of three and adults. Some of the trials will actually be uh, conducted at Mass Eye and Ear uh, out in Boston. So hopefully this will be a successful proof of concept for CRISPR, and we will be able to see it used in the future to aid in treating other genetic diseases. And this one, of course. Um, so yeah, I think that there's a lot to be said for CRISPR, and I think that there is still some caution we have to, uh, employ because as with anything brand new, it's especially something that is actually changing people's genetic makeup, uh, in their bodies, it is important to be a little cautious and to make sure that we are being really careful about it, um, but of course, I think that it's also at a spot where people are able to, um, you know, move forward with actual human trials. And so I think it's going to be really exciting to see what's going to happen from that. Okay, so it is high summer at this point. Um, we are moving into August, which is kind of the uh, crescendo of summer. Um, and so, of course many people go on vacation during the summer and uh, many people go on vacation and buy souvenirs. Um, and so I have a friend who uh, was just out at Hampton Beach. And of course, I remember Hampton Beach as just being one giant uh, sort of cheap and uh, embarrassing and silly uh, souvenir shop. <laughs> Basically, just I can remember all of the ridiculous souvenirs that they had there when I used to go there when I was younger. And so uh, 
My, you know, sort of regular inclination, if you asked me about it just off the top of my head for my general uh, knowledge about history and things like this, is to assume that these sort of items first became popular during Victorian times. Because that's kind of a, you know, it's kind of a good bet uh, if you're, you know, trying to figure out if some when something became popular uh, and it's a little bit weird or a little bit frivolous, um, it's often a good shot to try during the Victorian era. <laughs> um, and so, you know, many things that we do today did indeed uh, originate then. But it turns out that I'm actually very wrong. In fact, I'm wrong by almost 2,000 years. And so during an archaeological excavation at a Roman era site in London, uh, researchers discovered around 200 iron styluses, which would be used to write on wax filled wooden tablets. Now, one of those styluses actually has a message written on it in small letters, like, you know, a souvenir pencil today. The inscription basically translates to, I went to Rome and all I got was this pen, uh, according to the researchers. And so Roger Tomlin, a classicist and epigrapher at the University of Oxford, translated the message thusly. I have come from the city. I bring you a welcome gift with a sharp point that you may remember me. I ask, if fortune allowed, that I might be able to give as generously as the way is long and as my purse is empty. <laughs> and so uh, obviously the researchers believe that the city was most likely Rome. Um, and so the stylus is from around the year 70 CE. And it was discovered in a 2010 to 2014 dig ahead of construction of Bloomberg's European headquarters in London. And so the site was actually built over a portion of a now lost tributary of the Thames called the River Walbrook. And so a portion of Londinium, the Roman settlement, which was established in the area around the year 43, was actually along the banks of the River Walbrook. And so over 14,000 artifacts were recovered during the excavations. According to the Museum of London Archaeology, only a handful of inscribed styluses have been found throughout the Roman Empire, but none had such a long or poetic message as this one. And so the researchers suggest that there might be others out there, but they just simply haven't been recovered, or they could have been weathered, that weathering that has scared the writing. And so, in fact, this particular inscription was hard to read even after uh, conservation efforts. This unique inscribed stylus provides a new window on Londinium's international connections and its literary culture, but it also provides us with very tangible human connection to the owner and to the person who gave the gave them this affectionate, if inexpensive, gift. Michael Marshall, a senior Roman finds specialist for Mola, said in a statement. Now, in addition to the styluses, excavators working at the site have also found more than 400 fragments of personal letters, loan notes, contracts, receipts, and other texts found on wax tablets. Now, this is quite a discovery as these sorts of artifacts are rarely preserved. However, the waterlogged site helped 
helped to preserve them. Um, And so basically they got stuck in mud and that mud uh, helped keep them actually uh, able to be preserved and to not, uh, you know, melt away or get um, otherwise disturbed. And so, of course, the other part of the problem, why we don't have as much as we might like to have, is that, as you can imagine, with a wax tablet, uh, they were often reused. And so, you know, once you got a letter and you were done with it, you would just heat the wax back up and uh, let it dry, you know, let it uh, dry again. And, um, you know, then it would be a blank slate, um, so to speak. Um, and so the majority of those found were actually for financial or legal documents, because like today, those are the kinds of things that you actually keep, uh, rather than just either recycling or, um, you know, reusing for, you know, a shopping list or something. Um, and so one of these documents found was dated to January 8th, 57. Um, and it is an acknowledgement that a citizen owns 105 denarii to another man for merchandise that was sold and delivered. It may actually be the earliest piece of handwriting in Britain and London's earliest financial document. Another document from between 65 and 80 uh, CE is the earliest known reference to Londinium in a tablet. So that is very cool to have found found these things because, you know, that's the sort of thing that you always want to find in a um, dig because you want to be able to discover things being, um, you know, that, that actually connect you to the real people that were there. And so I think that is very cool. All right, so let's move back a bit further in time to once again talk about ancient Egypt. Now, of course, this is kind of a perpetual uh, topic because we're still just so fascinated by ancient Egypt. I mean, I certainly am, um, you know, and it's also comes up a lot for me because a lot of people have a lot of wacky ideas about what happened in ancient Egypt. Um, And so this was actually an idea that I think a lot of people initially thought was wacky uh, until um, a couple of decades ago when people started to really take it seriously and to do um, experimental archaeology. And so the Egyptians were amazing engineers. We know that. Um, But it turns out they were also amazing shipwrights. And they were able to build amazing boats that were that plied not only the waters of the Nile, but also the Red Sea, and potentially were even able to sail all the way to the Black Sea. Now, we don't currently know if that's true, but a group of adventurers have created a replica of an, of an Egyptian reed boat that is based on ancient depictions. In mid-August, the team, which consists of two dozen researchers and volunteers from eight countries, will launch from the Bulgarian port of Varna, hoping that the Abora 4 will be able to sail 700 nautical miles through the Bosporus, through the Aegean Sea, and on to the island of Crete. Now, the Greek historian Herodotus noted that Egyptians sailed through the Black Sea to get materials that they could not have from the East Mediterranean. Now, of course, the East Mediterranean was Crete. 
And so Dominique Gerlitz, the expedition's German leader, uh, noted that he had drawn inspiration for the design of the 46-foot-long boat from ancient rock drawings in Upper Egypt and the Caucasus. Now, interestingly, the uh, team brought in two experts, uh, two living experts <laughs> from the Aymara indigenous community uh, who live in the area around Lake Titicaca in Bolivia. And so that is Fermin the Menachi and his son Yuri. Now, the, Ima the Aymara actually have a still hanging on, but unfortunately fading tradition of building reed boats to sail on Lake Titicaca. And so um, the Abora 4 also resembles the Ra 2, which uh, Norwegian adventurer Thor Heyerdahl uh, used in his 1970 attempt to cross the Atlantic. Now, of course, the reason for this is that Limonacci's father uh, actually helped build that vessel. <laughs> And so uh, it's built using large bumbles, bundles of um, totara reed that were lashed together with ropes to form the main body of the vessel, uh, which was then equipped with a wooden mast and two reed compartments for sleeping. A total of 12 tons of totara reed and a mile of rope were used in the making of the ship that also has two large sails. The main question of all is whether this boat is able to cross the difficult island shelves of the Aegean Sea, Gerlitz said. Now again, aiming for Crete is important because we know specifically that the Egyptians did trade with the Minoans, who flourished on the island between 2700 and 1200 BCE. And so once launched, the boat will need two and a half weeks for the reeds to soak up water. Um, so basically, there are billions of air chambers inside the reeds, which actually means that it can't sink or crack, but you do have to let it actually sink. You need to let it soak up water first in order to create the um, ability for it to really do anything. I'm 100% sure that this ship will never sink. As long as the ship is floating, we have a safety raft here. Um, we have a safety raft here said volunteer Mark Pales, a 42-year-old electrician from the Netherlands. Now, I'm very excited about this. Um, I love experimental archaeology. Um, you know, it can't ever prove anything, but it's pretty good at highly suggesting that some things were the way that, they, that we suspected they were or weren't the way that we suspected they were. Um, and so I said that, you know, this has been... Uh, a couple of decades now, I think it's a couple of decades old by now, there is a PBS special um, that you can still find, I'm sure, somewhere called Building Pharaoh's Ship. Uh, and that is a ship that was created based on a bas relief uh, from the tomb of Hapshetsit and uh, was actually sailed to Punt, uh, which is via the Red Sea and is in, um, it's sort of on the lower, um, it's, it's, uh, south of Egypt. And so uh, that is a really, really cool show. And that boat is amazing. Um, I should say that ship, I think, um, is amazing. Uh, don't ask me the difference between ship and boat. Um, I would have to look it up. Um, and I should have, but um, yeah, that that particular vessel 
is really amazing. And of course, Hepshetzit was really amazing. Um, she was a female pharaoh who ruled and uh, expected to be treated as any other male pharaoh. And um, we are really lucky to know anything at all about her because her son, when he came to power, uh, tried really, really, really hard to basically erase her from existence. Um, and her uh, corpse was actually found, uh, her mummy was actually found um, in kind of an unmarked grave somewhere. And um, it's really an amazing story. But uh, she had this incredible incredible um, bass relief of a ship on one of the walls of her tomb. And it was so detailed that they were actually able to bring in uh, shipbuilders and have them look at it and have them say, yeah, I think that this makes sense that, you know, the proportions here, even with the kind of 2D um, illustration style of the Egyptians, which wasn't always great for uh actually, you know, accurately depicting things that were going on because of the way of the, um, the way that their, uh, aesthetic was, but it was this beautiful painting or beautiful, um, carving. And it's just the, the vessel was also incredibly beautiful. Um, and, you know, just to see it actually, um, sailing down the Red Sea was pretty amazing. So I highly recommend that, um, that documentary. Okay. So it is that time when we should take a break. And when we come back, uh, we're going to talk about something that just happened today, or I just saw the story and it was from today. And um, it's super exciting to me personally, um, because I've read a lot about these cases. And I've, I actually gave a uh, nerd night noho talk on uh, Mercy Brown. Um, and so we're going to talk about one of the uh, New England vampires when we come back and some new evidence and some new information about one of them. So stay tuned for that coming up in just a minute. It's time to ask Mr. Green from the Sierra Club. Thirsty in San Diego asks, Hey, Mr. Green, should I buy my beer in bottles or in cans? Well, Thirsty, I'm grateful someone finally went beyond the paper versus plastic quandary to a new meaningful dilemma. As with that old standby, it's a tough call. I could suggest that you purchase your suds in returnable kegs. This might be frowned upon by those who look to Mr. Green as an apostle of moderation. Thanks to kegs, Mr. Green would personally opt for bottles because they usually contain better varieties of beer and because manufacturing glass creates less pollution and requires less energy than making aluminum. Since glass is a much heavier material, however, the additional fuel used to ship bottles outweighs some of the benefits of making them. Aluminum also has a leg up on the recycling end. About 45% of beer and soda cans get recycled, as opposed to 20% of glass containers. Both percentages could be greatly improved if more states implemented bottle deposit laws, a fine, practical idea that the beverage industries are doing their damnedest to fight. Ask Mr. Green and learn a lot more online at sierraclubradio.org. You don't let your kids play in the toilet. That's what it's like when pet owners don't pick up pet waste. Irrigation and stormwater can carry this pollutant to storm drains and retention areas where our children play. Do the right thing. For yourself and your community, pick up after your pet. Bag it and properly dispose of it in the trash. Remember, only rain in the storm drain. Brought to you by Stormwater Outreach for regional municipalities. Visit storm at www.azstorm.org. Drum and Bass with DJ Fife is on 8 o'clock on Saturday night. 
We roll from 8 o'clock to 10 o'clock on the Valley Free Radio, WXOJLP, or online at valleyfreeradio.org. Join the 8 o'clock Drum and Bass Association by listening to Drum and Bass with DJ Fife, 8 to 10, Saturday nights. Sure, humans can be a little weird at times, but take it from me, I'm a dog. And a person is about the best thing that can happen to a shelter pet. So if you want to learn how you can be that person, get down to your local pet shelter or visit the shelterpetproject.org. Brought to you by the Ad Council. I Heart J-Rock with DJ Sakura is your weekly two-hour show devoted to rock music from Japan. Join me on Saturday nights, 10 p.m. to midnight. I'll be playing the very best and the newest J-Rock, J-Pop, J-Metal, VK, you name it, I'll play it as long as it's from Japan. Thank you. Great weather means it's time for kids to go out and play. But kids aren't the only ones outdoors. Ticks that spread Lyme disease and other infections are also active in the spring and summer. CDC reminds you and your children to wear insect repellent, bathe or shower as soon as possible after coming indoors, and check for ticks daily. If you've been bitten by a tick and developed fever, rash, or fatigue, seek medical care. To learn more, visit www.cdc.gov Lyme. Hi, I'm Charlie. I fight fires and I save lives. My name's Renee. I'm a cardiologist. I save lives. My name's Anthony. I'm an EMT. I save lives. You don't have to be a professional to save a life. Firefighters, doctors, and others save lives. You can too. Don't wait. To learn more about the warning signs and how you can help prevent suicide, visit save.org. In a crisis, call the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 1-800-273-TALK. Hello, this is John Hodgman, resident expert for The Daily Show with John Stewart and author of More Information Than You Require, speaking into a small machine, representing WXOJLP Northampton Valley Free Radio, found on your radio dial at 103.3 frequency modulation. That is all. Okay, we are back. You are listening to Evidence-Based Radio and... We are about to talk about a New England vampire. So uh, we're going to move a little closer, obviously, in both time and geography uh, to home. And so this is about a skeleton found in Griswold, Connecticut, back in 1990, uh, in what was kind of a forgotten cemetery. Um, And it ended up being that they were able to find uh, 27 people eventually in this little cemetery that had just kind of been forgotten about. Um, And so one of those was actually identified as a New England vampire. Now, of course, as I was mentioning before the break, the most famous of those was Mercy Brown. uh, And she may even have inspired some of the elements of Bram Stoker's Dracula. We know this because clippings about her case were actually found among his papers. And so this is actually about the skeleton of a man, formerly known only as JB55, because that was actually what was uh, sort of put, was stenciled out on his coffin in brass tacks. But now we actually have a name for JB. And so forensic scientists compared genetic material from the skeleton with online genealogical databases to identify the man as John Barber. This case has been a mystery since the 90s, Carla Marshall said. 
Um, Marshall is a forensic scientist who worked on the project. Now that we have expanded technological capabilities, we wanted to revisit JB55 to see whether we could solve the mystery of who he was. Now, research was done on the remains at the National Museum of Health and Medicine in Silver Springs, Maryland, and it suggests that he was a poor farmer who would have had a life of hard work and who would have died from tuberculosis, which is, of course, a common thread among most people who were thought to be vampires in the area. And so the researchers were able to use new DNA techniques and a computer algorithm to come up with the name Barber. They then looked for barbers living in Griswold in the early 1800s. They found that in 1826, a 12-year-old boy named Nathan Barber had died. His father was listed as John Barber. And the researchers were able to connect this to the skeleton because not only was there JB55, but there had been another coffin and skeleton nearby that had read NB13. And of course, you know, 1213, um, you know, he may have just turned 13, unfortunately, when he passed. Um, and so it was pretty, it's a pretty reliable um, connection. And so John, uh, in his lifetime, suffered from a poorly healed broken collarbone and an arthritic knee. But what really brought him down was the tuberculosis. His tuberculosis was so severe by the time he died that it left lesions on his ribs. Um, and so it's really not a huge surprise that his family might have suspected him of being a vampire. Jennifer Higginbotham, a DNA researcher with the U.S. Armed Forces Medical Examiner System, notes that tuberculosis was extremely contagious, and those suffering from the disease would often appear pale, with blood appearing around their mouths from coughing, and with receding gums that would have made their teeth look larger. And so this was a huge phenomenon uh, for a while in... Um, Really, it's centered in kind of Connecticut and Rhode Island, but there were definitely cases here. Um, there were a few cases even in Vermont and New Hampshire. Um, I'm not sure about Maine, but um, I know that it was definitely something that happened. Um, it was kind of concentrated mostly in uh, Rhode Island and Connecticut, um, but definitely it was a New England phenomenon. Um, I think there were a couple of cases further south, but really just sort of outlier cases. It was mostly really just uh, the people in New England who, you know, had this kind of idea that it's not really surprising. People were dying of tuberculosis. It's terrible. You don't know what to do. You're trying to try anything. Um, and so even though it seems like they were being very superstitious and, you know, ridiculous, when everyone around you is dying of a terrible disease that no one can cure, um, you tend to start to do whatever you think you can do. Um, and of course, these are not the only people who have ever been suspected of vampires. Um, you know, there's a rich tradition in Eastern Europe, for instance, of people who were buried with spikes through them or with bricks in their mouths and things like that as well. And so, yeah. But getting back to these... Uh, 
so-called vampires. Uh, Once interred, suspected vampires were often dug up to look for signs of life. Unfortunately, several natural processes can make a corpse look like it has continued to grow, uh, especially hair and nails, or uh, to have fluids escape from the mouth that might look like it had been um, consuming someone's blood. Now, when this happened, the heart was usually removed and burned. And this was, of course, the case in Mercy Brown's, um, this was what happened in Mercy Brown's case. Uh, The heart was burned and it was actually given to her brother who had developed tuberculosis in order to try and cure him. Um, Unfortunately, it didn't work and uh, he still passed away. Now, Barbara's heart would have actually already been um, rotten away at this point because he was actually not dug up until well after um, he had first been buried. Instead, his skeleton was rearranged. The the skull and limb bones uh, were arranged in a sort of skull and crossbones position atop his rib cage. This was their desperate attempt to keep vampires from returning from the grave, Higginbotham said. Um, and yeah, I mean, that's, that's really what it is, is that they were just so desperate to try and deal with this thing that they had no idea how to deal with. Um, and, you know, it wasn't until many late years later that we were able to develop a cure for tuberculosis with modern uh, antibiotics. And of course, as I um, have probably mentioned several times before, because it's actually been something that I've been worried about since I was, uh, since I first read about it. And I think Omni Magazine, uh, back when I was in high school, um, goodness, I'm dating myself, um, that uh, there are uh, strains of uh, antibiotic resistant tuberculosis. And that just makes me personally feel very upset because um, I do not like the idea of uh, catching infectious diseases. Um, and so it's it's been a problem. Um, and it's actually a huge problem in Africa um, right now because a lot of people have AIDS and then they get the tuberculosis and it's just, it's really bad. Um, so unfortunately, we have not yet really Uh, rid ourselves of the specter of those kinds of horrible tuberculosis deaths. And uh, yeah, but um, Michael E. Bell is a folklorist, and he's kind of the authority on New England vampires. Um, I relied heavily on his uh, research when talking about them. And so he actually quotes an 18th century doctor in a 2013 essay. Uh, The doctor said, The emaciated figure strikes one with terror, the forehead covered with drops of sweat, the cheeks a livid crimson, the eyes sunk, the breath offensive, quick and laborious. And so, you know, not exactly a good time. Um, And so uh, Bell has actually documented 80 cases of uh, what are called what he calls therapeutic exhumations. Uh, They were usually conducted by family members. And of course, they were done to stop the suspected vampire from continuing to affect the living, uh, especially family members. And so it's it's a really fascinating, fascinating story about um, the way in which people uh, will create rituals in order to try and keep themselves from basically going mad in the face of something that is completely uh, 
outside of their control. Um, and so, yeah, I think it's just, it's such a fascinating story. And I'm just so interested the, by the fact that they were actually able to put a name and a story to this particular person, because I think that's, that's the thing that's really um, always gotten me about stories like this, um, about, you know, graveyards when they're forgotten, or, um, you know, when they're vandalized and things like that. Um, even though I'm not uh, particularly spiritual in any way, I do think it's very important to try and honor people's legacies and to um, respect the fact that, you know, these people lived and died. And, you know, um, there is a bit of that Egyptian idea that it's really sad when they're forgotten, and they no longer have a name. Um, and so I think it's really nice when someone is able to have their name returned to them. Okay, so let's completely change <laughs> uh, gears again. And so last week, we talked about how humans perceive sounds, uh, specifically pitch, and how that relates to our um, our enjoyment of things like music, and also why monkeys might not be able to understand us uh, as much as we think they should be able to. This week, we're going to talk about the sense of smell. So a group of researchers, Florin Albano, Alexei Kulikov, and their colleagues, Han Go Che, Daniel Keppel, and Walter Bast, all from Cold Springs Harbor Laboratory, as well as Venkatesh Murthy from Harvard University, have been testing past odor classifying models to test and discover discrepancies. That they've they've been uh, testing them and they've found discrepancies, and so uh, they are looking into how it is that animals smell. Smell, excuse me, uh, specifically how the activity of neuronal networks translates into a sense of smell. Now, brains assign different values to stimuli we receive. Envision the brain is looking for edges, contours, luminance, and color. However, for smell, we don't really know what the brain is looking for, and we don't know what physical or chemical features, if any, the brain extracts, Almano said. Now, previous research has looked at smell processing as comparable to the way a chemist would, that the brain might be looking for physical or chemical properties as landmarks. We found that to smell, the brain doesn't work like a chemist at all, said Kulikov. Chemists accumulate enormous lists of properties they assign to molecules, but it appears that neurons care more about that about more than just those properties. In fact, they're extracting something else, and we don't know what it is at this point. <laughs> and so the sense of smell is also different from the sense of sight because the mechanism used to analyze smells actually features a robust feedback loop between the nose and brain. When odor particles enter the nasal cavity, they trigger odorant receptors to bind them. These receptors are expressed by olfactory uh, receptor neurons in the sensory tissue of the nasal cavity. Information from these receptors is then transmitted to the olfactory bulb, a region located in the front of mammalian brains, which then sends the information on to higher processing areas of the brain, such as the cerebral cortex. The signals are then further analyzed and disseminated to the brain before being conveyed back to the bulb in a feedback loop. 
Rich feedback makes the olfactory system somewhat different from the visual system, Kulikov says. There is an extensive feedback to those early levels of processing from the cortex, and that could make predictions about the nature of the incoming stimuli and modify whatever we pay attention to. So they suggest that this is able to help with weeding out background smells, like your own breath, for instance, um, while allowing you to narrow in on new or surprising odors. The researchers analyzed the responses of mice neurons to many different smells. They characterized the similarities between pairs of different smells in terms of the chemical and physical features of the molecules. Armed with this data, they were able to investigate ways to compare the molecular features of odors to how similarly they are treated by neuronal activity throughout the olfactory bulb. This led them to the revelation that smells with similar chemical and physical features set off different activity patterns in the brain. This suggests that while these elements are part of how the brain identifies odors, there is another equally or even more important element that we don't yet understand. If you think about the structure of the olfactory system, then it becomes clear why this is, Kulikov said, because olfactory experience is very subjective. Perception of smell actually depends on the context and on an individual's prior experience. And so knowing that there is a more complex picture of what the olfactory inputs and further processing by the sensory bulb um, and that it cares about different aspects should help researchers to develop new, more comprehensive and testable computational models to allow researchers to get a better handle on how the mammalian and thus human olfactory systems work. Now, the work does contradict other previous work, as noted at the beginning, but the researchers say that while there was some correlation between some molecular properties of odors and the neuronal activity they elicit, the author suggests that this held little predictive power when new odor pairs or shuffled properties were tested. And so the researchers see this as a great first step to developing a more robust understanding of the mechanisms of smell. So that's pretty cool. All right. Let's move on now to talk about a story that involves some very classic earth science. Um, I'm sure that you were taught, as I was in uh, school, that there are these things called volcanic hotspots. And so the, you know, sort of go-to one that everybody talks about is, of course, the Hawaiian island chain. And so these have long been classified as stationary points, Uh, which are created by processes deep within the mantle. And so there is this hotspot and then the, uh, you know, the plate actually moves over the hotspot, which is why you get a string of islands. Um, That's kind of been the model for forever. But using new paleomagnetic data and analyses, researcher John Tarduno, a professor of earth and environmental sciences at the University of Rochester, Richard Bono, a former postdoctoral research associate in Tarduno's lab, and now a postdoctoral researcher at the University of Liverpool, and Hans-Peter Bunge, a geophysicist at Munich University, have found conclusive evidence that hotspots are not actually fixed, but rather are able to move. Now, the Earth's lithosphere, or the 
sort of crust is composed uh, sort of of seven major tectonic plates plus some other smaller ones. Um, and today, the plates roughly encompass, uh, you know, the seven continents and the Pacific Ocean. But in the past, they have formed a series of supercontinents such as Pangaea, which began to break up around 175 million years ago. Now, activity on the borders of these plates is where much of the Earth's seismic activity occurs, including, of course, earthquakes and volcanoes. But as we know, there are other regions which feature volcanic activity, and these spots are referred to as hotspots. Now, they are theorized to be abnormally hot upwellings of the Earth magma in, into the mantle called mantle plumes, um, or from the mantle up into the lithosphere. And so when the plumes push through the lithosphere, they form volcanoes, such as at Yellowstone, Hawaii, uh, the Galapagos Islands, and Iceland. Those are the big, sort of uh, well-known ones. And so while plate tectonics has been accepted since the 1960s, Tartuno notes that deciphering the past motion of Earth tectonic plates and linking these motions to deep processes within the Earth is an ongoing challenge in the geosciences. Now, um, another day we might talk about the challenge uh, that the theory of plate tectonics had uh, to becoming established science, uh, but not tonight. <laughs> and so, of course, I remember being taught that Hawaii was a prime example of a hotspot with the curved chain of islands having been created in a sort of conveyor belt fashion as the Pacific plate moved over the hotspot. And so in 2001, Tarduno and his colleagues collected samples of rock and sediment from a scientific drilling expedition in Hawaii's Emperor Seamounts, which are undersea extinct volcanoes. They compared the, mechanism, the magnetism locked into these ancient samples, uh, which geologists refer to as paleomagnetism, and they determined that the hotspot was not stationary, but rather moved in a way consistent with convection currents in the mantle. Now, at the time, not all of their colleagues were convinced. Researchers subsequently found that many hotspots are rooted in one of two large regions above the core mantle boundary. There's one large region under Africa and another under the Pacific. Research by seismologists suggested these regions, which are known as low shear velocity provinces, or LLSVPs, <laughs> were unusually hot or chemically different from the surrounding rock because seismic waves moved more slowly through these areas. Some researchers believe that these regions are relics of plate subduction, when one plate moves downward into the mantle beneath another plate, and this would suggest that they are moving. Others believe that they are stationary and formed during the processes uh, in primordial times when the planet was first uh, sort of congealing from the uh, sort of fiery uh, origins. And so new work by Tarduno and his team, including modeling, geochemistry, and paleomagnetism, suggests that LLSVPs are actually in motion and are relative relics of subduction that has been taking place since the breakup of Pangaea. 
LLSVPs are clearly ancient, greater than 100 million years old, but some researchers have claimed that they are also fixed and thus can be used as a reference frame for plate motion, Tarduno says. The new analyses suggest that LLSVPs can attract mantle plumes until the LLSVPs and the mantle plumes merge. They also found that these areas can undergo large-scale motion comparable in speed to that of tectonic plates, which suggests that the motion of hotspots is responsible for the bend of the Hawaiian Islands rather than it being stationary. So that's really cool. I always love a story about uh, (laughs) sort of, oh, by the way, we've decided that something is completely different from what we thought it was. Whoops. (laughs) Um. Now, of course, that's one of the big things that I'm always talking about in science, and that is actually one of the sort of things that I consider to be a feature and not a bug of science, which is that science is constantly self-correcting. And so it's really important to me to uh, know that science is doing that and that we are able to know that this is happening. And so... You have this thing where everybody's learned this in the grade book, in grade school, that you have these hot spots and they're stationary and you're able to track things across them and know that, you know, the islands are going to keep popping up because there's this one hot spot. And then you have people who actually think, well, we've had this idea based on the fact that it's it's kind of, you know, it makes sense. But has anyone actually gone there and really looked? (laughs) And so, you know, we often sort of poo-poo that kind of research where someone's like, well, of course that's how it is. And then someone actually goes and does the experiment. And a lot of times it's like, oh, okay, yes, that's really how it is. But sometimes it's like this, where it's like, no, actually they are moving. And of course they're not moving huge amounts. Um, And so it's not like they're migrating across the Pacific, but they are actually moving. And so that's not something that we had ever realized before. And so I just think it's really cool that we're able to find that sort of thing out. All right, that is all the time we have for tonight. Uh, Please do stay tuned for Civil Politics coming up next. This show is part of the Planetside Productions Network. For more information, please visit www.planetside.pro. And thank you for listening.